Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, worship team, for aiding us in lifting our hearts and minds and thoughts to, toward God and time in his presence together. Last week, we began a, a brand new series, and it was introductory, and today is a kind of introductory as well. Um, years ago, I began a practice when I start an exposition of a book of scripture I like to read the book over and over and get a feel for the landscape of the whole book before just diving in verse 1 and just taking off. And so last week was a little bit like that, and we did an overview of Paul's New Testament letter to the church in Philippi. And when we uh, went through that together, we learned that the gospel of Christ uh, the flag of the gospel was planted in Philippi as the first place in Europe where a convert was won to Christ. And we saw what a beautiful scene it was along the riverbanks there in Philippi where God opened the heart of a woman named Lydia and perhaps others who were there. Then they proceeded to her household and others in her household came to faith. We saw how God delivered through Paul a slave girl who was demonized and set her free of the affliction of her demon that was being merchandised by those who owned her. And we also saw then that that caused a ruckus, and Paul ended up in the Philippian jail. And you remember the very dramatic story of the conversion of the Philippian jailer and uh, how he then was ministering to Paul and to his companion, and they, he helped to clean them and bandage them from the beating they had taken. And we learned all that, and so we laid some groundwork. We also said that though many uh, would say that the main theme of the book of Philippians is joy and rejoicing, which it certainly, uh, I think some 16 times it comes up in just four chapters. But I tend to think that joy and rejoicing is a byproduct of something else. And so uh, in my own studies, I, I, I tended to agree uh, with uh, Dr. Sidlow Baxter in his uh, sort of his magnum opus on the scriptures called Exploring the Book. He outlined the book in a way that really resonated with me as I studied it, and I felt it was true to the scripture. And we said that we could overview the book in this way, that the main theme of Philippians is the, is the relation of Christ himself, the risen, living Christ, his relationship to the individual believer and that effect upon our lives as we grow and get to know him better. And we said in chapter 1 we could say that the theme is Christ himself is our life. Our life is found in him and he in us and we are forever united to him and he becomes our very life. And that of course is in verse 21 where Paul uh, expresses, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in chapter 2 we said that the theme of chapter 2 was Christ himself is my mind or my affections. And we have that in verse 5. Have this mind or have these, this attitude rather in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And then in chapter 3, we said that the third chapter, we could say, is Christ himself is our goal. And uh, in the 10th verse of chapter 3, Paul, after expressing the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord and the righteousness that's found in him alone as a gift of the grace of God, Paul could say in verse 10, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And Paul is celebrating the fact that though I know him and have truly come to know him, I just want to know him better. I want to get to know him better. And so um, that's the third chapter. And then the fourth chapter, and these are all famous verses that most of us have memorized and are familiar with, but in the fourth chapter we said Christ himself is the believer's strength. And we gathered that up from verse 13 that I can do all things through Christ who what? Who strengtheneth me. And so that's how we viewed the overall book. Today, we're going to do something similar with the first chapter. We're going to overview the whole first chapter, but then we're going to sort of move clockwise. We're going to move clockwise through one time around the whole, the whole chapter. Then, like concentric circles, we're going to move again um, around the clock, focusing on the opening 11 verses. And then at the end, we're going to focus on a central verse, and that's the focus of today. So I am not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to reference some of the verses. I'm assuming since we're going through Philippians as a church family, um, you'll be pulling it out during the week and reading into the next chapter and wondering how we're going to approach it and what the Lord might be doing in Pastor Tony's life this week as he ponders this section. So today, the title of the message is Confidence, but not Presumption. Confidence, but not Presumption. And you'll see that when we get toward the end of this particular message The first thing I want you to see is that Paul is bound to these believers at Philippi in what we would call the fellowship of the gospel. And if you look there at verse um, verse 3 and follow, actually, let's see. No, I'm not going to go that fast. Let's see, how do I want to do this? The fellowship of the gospel opens before us in the opening 11 verses. And the idea there is Paul's connection with those believers. He even says from the first day until now, there was this, they were just bound together, much like this church for many years existed. And and we have a list of pastors who served here, and it goes back about 100 years or something, Kathy, Uh, It goes back, way back when Old Kettle Falls was down where the lake now is. But we have a list of these pastors, many, many, many pastors. And we, I studied that one time and read it carefully. I think Patty Gunther gave me a copy of it. And uh, I'm sure they were all, hopefully they were all good men and solid in the word and brought the gospel and that the church stayed together. And, um, but the problem was is that as you looked at their tenure here, One would be here six months, another one would be here a year and a half, 
Another one would serve the church maybe two years at the most. But we have this long list of pastors that were just here for a short while. And then back in the 70s, the church here called upon Village Missions and asked them about coming and sharing the work of Village Missions and how, what, how do they do it? How do they send the pastor and his family to us? How does it work? And so they came and presented it. And Pastor Tom and Karen Douglas were the first missionaries to come and serve here. And for the first time in the church's history, the Douglases stayed here about 10 years, didn't they, Kath? Nine, somewhere nine to 10 years they stayed. And Pastor Tom was a great teacher and a discipler of men and uh, um, just a wonderful pastor. And they served all this time. Well, they've been way back east now for a long time. Um, the second pastor was uh, Larry Gowan and his wife, Ginny. And they were the second with Village Missions who came to serve us here. And they stayed some six years or five, Kathy says, five years. But both those men exceeded the tenure of all that preceded them. For some strange reason, you have not tarred and feathered me and run me off because I've been a, a, privileged to be here now for over three decades. And such an honor to grow with you. And we've seen people come and people go, people transferred for work, people grow up in their faith here and, and die. And we lay them to rest until the ultimate resurrection. We have seen all kinds of people come and go and people's lives transformed through the power of the gospel. And like I said to somebody, they said, well, how many churches have you served in the last however long? And I said, well, I've served about a half a dozen right there in Kettle Falls. Because other than a few who are the faithful who have stayed with us, we have a new church about every three to five years. Uh, it's new people who come, and so it's a whole new church to pastor. It's not the building, right? The building's not the church, really. It's where we gather. And so I'm bringing all this up to say that from the time VM united with Kettle Falls Community Church, there has been the partnership, the fellowship of the gospel that we have shared together. And we have been honored to have um, young people come and intern with us through the years. And uh, I don't know, close to a dozen now or something like that. Some of them went sent and, and served for four or five years and then felt that wasn't God's calling. They discovered it, and so they ended up doing something else. Some are still out there serving. Uh, Pastor Greg mentioned Pastor Danny, who's over at Pacific City. And Danny has been used by God there in that church, and he started out low man on the totem pole, and within 10 years, the Lord has put Danny in a position of being the head chaplain over Tillamook County. And he has that ministry of serving as a chaplain in addition to pastoring the church there at Pacific City. And we're just so proud of him and um, just grateful for him and Amber. But all of this is about this word, fellowship of the gospel. That's what Paul is celebrating in the opening 11 verses. Then we see also in this chapter not only be the fellowship of the gospel, but because of their partnering and their encouragement and their support, 
Because of that, there is a furtherance of the gospel. And Paul says, even in spite of my circumstances in prison, it has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, he says in this chapter. And he speaks about the believers in the praetorian guard who have come to know Christ and others who, because of Paul's difficulties and hardships and yet still outspoken testimony, he is impacting others so that they are even bolder to share Christ with others. And so the fellowship of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, and then the faith of the gospel. And you see that there. You can see it there in verse um, 27. Only conduct yourselves, he writes these Philippians, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, the embodiment of truth, the revelation of the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ and what he uh, has achieved and offers the believing sinner. So that's an overview of the whole chapter. Now what we want to do is zero in on just verses 3 through 11. And in 3 through 11, Paul gets personal. It's kind of like the man Paul is saying to these Philippians, this is where I'm at. This is what's flowing out of my heart on your behalf. And the first thing that we see is he says, basically, you are in my mind by way of remembrance. Look there at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. You just feel the appreciation and the gratitude just coming out of him, don't you? Right off the bat. Always offering, or yes, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Verse 5, in view of your participation, your fellowship. That word participation is the word fellowship. Your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And so he says, you're in my mind by way of remembrance. When I think of you, I have such good thoughts and such a grateful heart for you. So as he writes them, this is what's going on in his heart and soul. We also see that he says, not only are you in my mind, but you're in my heart with affection. Look at verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all, I think he's from down south, y'all are partakers of grace with me. And God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says, Not only are you in my mind by way of memory, but you're in my heart by way of affection. I share the very affection of Jesus Christ for you. And by the way, 
That's a very important statement that Paul makes there. The other day, Kathy and I turned the TV on for something, and a commercial popped up. And it was a pastor, I use that very loosely, a, one of those TV evangelists who said, um, I'm here to announce this special offer for, for you all. And they had these little packages that looked like uh, the hot sauce you get from Taco Bell or maybe uh, mayonnaise, uh, you know, little plastic packages. Well, they had mass-produced these, probably overseas somewhere, and it said miracle water on it. And he said, I have, I have prayed over these crates and cartons of miracle water, and if you will send me a certain amount, I will send you this miraculous, miracle-working water. You just tear it off like you would hot sauce at Taco Bell, and you pour it on yourself, and then they had a lady come on, and she shared her testimony. And her testimony was, I poured the water all over myself, Pastor, and the next thing I knew, I had money coming in, my bills were paid, I got a new car, and she just went on and on. When Paul talks to the church, he has no gimmicks. There's no pretension. He has no ulterior motive. He's not after their purses and he's not after their wallets. He's not after their real estate. He wants nothing from them except to build them up in their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, I call God as my witness that I have affection for you in Christ Jesus. I genuinely care. That's the kind of shepherds we need, isn't it? Not the miracle water. Next we see, Paul says, not only that, because you're in my mind and because you're in my heart and affections, a result is, is that you are in my prayers. And we see that in verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. When we were singing that song, more love, more power, more of you, Lord, in my life. I thought, is that biblical? Is that a good song? I think so. Look at verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So Paul, it's really blustery out there, isn't it? <laughs> I watch too many shows too many little things with my grandkids and so I'm watching this and I'm thinking of uh, Winnie the Pooh on the blustery day <laughs> from the divine to the ridiculous alright so we've started by looking at the chapter as a whole the fellowship of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel and the faith of the gospel then we zeroed in on the first 11 verses and we see that Paul is telling us about himself. You believers are in my mind by remembrance. You are in my heart with affection, and you are in my prayers as I intercede for you. 
but. In a sense, Paul is saying, but the greatest joy I have over you is the last one in the center of what's up above. My greatest joy over you all is knowing this, that what God, what he begins, he always finishes. Do you remember back in 2008, hasn't been too long ago, remember when the financial crisis kind of hit our country and there was a downturn and interest rates got crazy and um, all over the country there were building projects that just sat there. Apartment complexes that were half framed and just sitting there. And you could see them months and months later, weeds weeds and were growing up all around. There were a little bit of leftover materials thrown off to the side. They'd gathered up their stuff and left. And here was this unfinished project. And they were all across the country like that because they had begun a project that they could not finish. Let me say this. When God begins a work in you, he always, always finishes the work that he begins. And, you know, I was telling Kath the other night, I said, Kath, all these years, some 40 years together, every now and then, two or three times a year, in all the churches that we've served, we've had a special testimony time, and ultimately we will find our way in Second Peter chapter 1, and we'll be talking about his divine power and becoming partakers of the divine nature and thinking about his great and magnificent promises that God has given his own. And I said to Kath, Kathy, whenever we open it up to God's people, no matter where we've been, what's the very first promise that God's people share? And she immediately said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And I said, isn't that amazing? And I know God's people know more promises than that, but that one is always the first. You know, back in the early 1800s, Robert Murray McShane preached a message called The Pilgrim's Staff. And what he was picturing was the, the Christian as a pilgrim as he makes his way journeying through this world. And he has a staff with him, especially when he's climbing or traversing up a mountainside on a narrow path or shale beneath his feet. It's nice to have that. When some of you go out for a walk through the woods, you often find a stick, don't you? I do, especially if I'm climbing. But he pictured the Christian pilgrim as leaning on his staff, tired maybe from the journey, maybe going through some hardships, trials, difficulties in the journey, but leaning on that staff. And he went back and traced it from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament clear into Hebrews chapter 13 where it says let your way of life be free from the love of money and be content with such things as ye have for he himself has promised I will never leave you nor will I forsake you and he said that that is like the staff that the pilgrim leans on that great promise because it accompanies the godly, the believing, those, those who have been redeemed 
and who have been united through faith in the grace of God, those believers have leaned on that staff the whole of their lives. I'll never leave you or forsake you. But I would like to say that ranking right up there with that promise is the promise of verse 6. Look at that verse. Tell me if that isn't just just unsurpassed in terms of value to your own heart and soul. Look at verse 6. Paul writes to these Philippian believers, For I am confident of this very thing, that he, which is the most important word in this verse, he who began a good work in you will perfect it Bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What a promise. What God begins, God finishes. And so then, the real question for for all of us, the real question is simply this. Since what God begins, he always finishes, then the vital question is, Has he begun a good work in me? Has he begun a good work in me? Have I understood the gospel that Christ gave himself on the cross of Calvary for my sins? That Christ suffered under the wrath and judgment of God for me? He intercepted God's condemnation of me by taking it himself. And he cried from the cross after those six hours, it is finished. You see, God never starts something without finishing it. And even Christ in his earthly life could come to his last breath and cry, it is finished. I've done it, Father. I've achieved it. I've done everything necessary for their redemption and their salvation. I have done it all. And all there is now for them is to welcome the beginning of my work within them, to say, yes, Lord, I need you. I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I'm guilty of sin and under your condemnation, and I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And I believe in Jesus Christ and what your son did for me on the cross of Calvary. And I believe that that third day, death couldn't hold him and the grave couldn't hold him. Hell could not hold him because he died a sinless man. And he rose and he lives. And when we preach the gospel and we share it and appeal to people, we're not just giving them information only. We're offering them a living, risen, reigning person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So my question to you this morning is, can you celebrate this verse? Is verse 6 yours? Are you in the grip of verse 6? Do you have this confidence that what God has begun in me, he will bring to completion? My life will not be like a broken down, disheveled, half-built apartment complex 
now the haven of rats and pigeons and their droppings. I will not be like that half-built apartment. But what God has begun, he will bring to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Is that true of you? That's why I titled the message the way I did. Because I know, let me just listen up now. I recognize through all these years that it is possible to begin to make efforts to reform one's life. Maybe they've lived a rough life. Maybe they've been into things they're ashamed of. And they feel like I could just, if I could just go to church and associate with better folks and, you know, stay away from certain elements that are not good for me, if I could just get it together. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you can't get it together. You need a savior. I need a savior. And so instead, I come to Christ and I say, here's my messed up life. I got nothing to offer you but my heart. Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life and would you change me? Because I can't change myself, not really. That's the gospel. Have you done that? guys. And I say this tenderly with concern because I don't want anybody being deceived or living with the presumption that because I attend church or because I do this or do that, therefore I can have this confidence. No, you can't. This confidence comes to the one in whom God himself through Christ has begun a good work a good work, and he promises, oh yes, you'll have twists and turns, and you'll stumble and, and fall, but God will clean you up and get you back on your feet, because what he begins, he what? He finishes. And that's the gospel. Come to him. Trust in him. And so as Kathy's going to come, and she's going to sing a song for us in just a moment, and then we're going to sing it with her. She's going to teach us a song. It's okay. We'll just, we'll be able to get it. But I just don't take it for granted anymore. And I care too much to take it for granted. Too many people fill churches today who are presumptuous and who are externally religious and who are trying and I remember I was a baby Christian, 21 years old, but I was a brand new Christian. And I think it was the third Sunday that I had attended church. I'm brand new, remember. And on the way out of church, and isn't it funny, you never forget things. As I was making my way out of church, Pastor David Croy was our pastor down in Medford, Oregon. And there's all this line of people. And I'm always, you know, I was brand new. I was scared to t even talk to the pastor. That guy up there that preaches the word, are you kidding? I might die if I shake his hand. You know, that's how I'm feeling. And I go up to him, and he extended his hand, and he said, good morning, Tony. I've been praying for you. How you doing? And he knew my name, for goodness sakes. 
I mean, it wasn't enough that the Lord of glory knows my name and called me to himself, but the pastor now knows my name. (laughs) And I shook his hand, and he said, Good morning, Tony. I've been praying for you. And he said, How are you doing? And I said this. I said, Pastor, and I'd been struggling. Pastor, I'm trying. And I'll never forget what he said. Stop that. And trust in Jesus Christ. Changed my life. Just like that. How many of you need to hear that this morning? Stop that and put your trust in Him. Kathy, can you sing that? Kathy's going to 